Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. It's hard to imagine life without the internet, but for a technology so pervasive in our lives, we know surprisingly little about how it works, or more importantly, how to protect ourselves in the digital space in the age of mass surveillance and data mining. Out of the periphery of most online users, there's a vast hidden space in the ether used by hacktivists, drug dealers, and anyone else who wants to remain anonymous. It's called the dark web, a subsect of which filmmaker Alex Winner explores in his new documentary, Deep Web. The film focuses on the philosophy and trial of the Silk Road, a black market using Bitcoin cryptocurrency hosted on the dark net. Adopted from the famous drug route across Asia, the Silk Road was created by young computer prodigy Ross Ulbricht, who called himself Dread Pirate Roberts. Ross started the Darknet project with the intention to radically confront the power establishment by circumventing the drug war, but ended up being made a public example of, given a double life sentence without the possibility of parole. With such an unprecedented punishment, obviously there was more to the story. Alex Winter, also an actor and privacy advocate, attended Ross Ulbricht's trial. Winter's a longtime internet activist who has documented government persecution of web pioneers in multiple films, including Downloaded, about Napster, Relatively Free, about Barrett Brown, and now Deep Web, exploring the many precedents set by the Silk Road case. I sat down with Alex Winter to discuss more about the Deep Web, the Silk Road, and why encryption on things like signals still matter in light of the WikiLeaks Vault 7 release. So your film Deep Web obviously covers so much ground in telling the story of Silk Road. Um, it was also narrated by Keanu Reeves, it which was. was really cool, your yeah. counterpart in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> yeah. Let's start with the basics, because mm-hmm. this is a really hard topic for someone to delve into who, do- who doesn't know anything about the Deep Web. Mm-hmm. What is the Deep Web? What's on it? How big is it? Okay, that's a really good question, because there's a lot of misinformation around it, um, like there is around anything involving cryptography and people who want privacy and anonymity um, in the digital space. So the deep web is only refers to uh, essentially technical GAC. It's just what's under the hood of the internet. It's unindexed content. So it's stuff that... Uh, that people aren't interested in indexing, which mostly means like banking data, um, sort of the flotsam that flies around the internet that needs to exist there, but does not need to be indexed for any reason. Code, that type of thing. And that's gigantic, because it's just noise. Uh, what happened was there's an area called the dark net. Uh, the deep web is very, very big, right? There's an area called the dark net that's very, very small. Um, and that's where people actually commune. And so what uh, cryptographers did over the years is they kind of, they drilled their way into this little space and they created tools um, like a browser called Tor, which has its own uh, hidden service within the darknet. And you can use Tor uh, to, that's where the Silk Road uh, black market showed up. Um, And you can use it to communicate with other people. um, And it has a onion suffix instead of, you know, a .com suffix. Uh, And that's essentially hidden away from sort of public viewing. Uh, And that was initially created, even TOR itself was funded initially by the U.S. government, uh, the Navy, but it was initially created mostly for um, intelligence communication, that they wanted to be encrypted. But the way, uh, you know, encryption works, if you're the only one on the wire, then everyone knows you're on the wire. 
<laughs> right? So they, they didn't want to be, intelligence community didn't want to be the only ones in, this, in the darknet, the only people talking. You know, if you, two guys with a styrofoam cup and a string, and there's no one else there, they're like, oh, that's where the two guys from the NSA are, because there's no one else there. <laughs> so they let that technology go out into the public. They wanted to populate that space, because then they can live amongst the noise. Um, so that's kind of, it's the simplest way I could put it. It's, it's a little complicated, but deep web is big and vast and kind of meaningless for the average person. Darknet is teeny weeny and has things going on in it like, you know, intelligence people, people who just want to, you know, have privacy online and people selling drugs and contraband and things like the Silk Road. Uh, dissidents, uh, exactly. journalists use it for these reasons too. So exactly. it's not this nefarious criminal enterprise. Oh, not There's at a all. lot of good things happening. Not, not only is it not just nefarious, but it's, it's, you know, sort of like looking at Manhattan and saying that, Manhattan is a haven for drugs because, you know, there's an alleyway where someone's selling drugs. The, the large percentile of what's going on on the dark net isn't crime related. It's, you know, journalism, uh, intelligence, community communications. It, it doesn't get publicized because those people want privacy. So there was a, uh, a, a very loud and still to some degree is noisy bias against the dark net saying, oh, it's all bad. It's all drugs. It's all guns. Um, but it ignores the fact that the people that are not doing those things don't want to advertise. Right. Um, so uh, they're not making noise about being there. What was different about Silk Road when it first came into fruition? Because it certainly wasn't the first online marketplace for drugs and et cetera. No. I mean, the Internet has been driven by porn and drugs since there was an Internet. Um, and so there were drugs online at the very beginning of the Internet pre-web. Um, the Silk Road was watershed, uh, and this is why I wanted to make a movie about it, um, because as far as the public or the DOJ or the, you know, the government waking up to it was concerned, it was watershed because uh, when it was created, it was combining Tor, which was you know, this way to get into uh, Tor hidden services, with Bitcoin, which was uh, viewed as an anonymous form of currency. Uh, by combining those two things, it attracted an enormous user base. So people started using it like crazy, and that's what it scaled, you know, in technical terms. Uh, that's why it caught the eye of, of uh, the DEA and places like that. And also started to get press, you know. I think uh, Adrian Chen and Gawker did a big article on it. it. It grew because it got press, and people started saying, oh, there's this crazy community where people are exchanging drugs and all kinds of stuff. Um, so that made the government take notice. Um, there are many reasons why the government took notice that are not obvious, which is what I wanted to get into mm -hmm. in my film. And there are also many things about the Silk Road that are not obvious, which is what I wanted to get into in the film. And so uh, to the public, the Silk Road was watershed because, oh, my God, uh, you could buy heroin online, which you kind of always could, but now it's you know, much easier, click of a button, whatever. Um, to me, what was watershed about the Silk Road was it was the first time in history that you had a large-scale anonymous online community. Uh, and that matters. And that changed a lot permanently. Um, I'd made a movie before Deep Web uh, called Downloaded about Napster, and my perspective on Napster was similar, which was that Napster was the first time in history that you had the first uh, large-scale online community, period. It was the first time that you had 50 to 100 million simultaneous users moving through one central database, which, again, it changed the world. So I was very interested in the Silk Road when I learned about it because when I got on the Silk Road before it got shut down, uh, I didn't care about drugs. I was there seeing that there were tens of thousands of people with anonymous usernames in an anonymous community communicating about politics, philosophy, literature, 
drugs, whatever, um, there'd never been anything really quite like that before in an anonymous uh, environment. And that was, to me, very striking. Your movie really, really does depict that other side of it that you obviously don't hear in the press. It's painted as this crazy criminal conspiracy with, you know, Ross was a, a murderous scumbag who, who deserves to be locked away for life. But really, your movie paints it as this kind of beautiful, organic thing that, especially in today's day and age, good God, I mean, nothing's anonymous, right? So, it, so I could see the attraction, of course. And I wanted to talk more about the, these founding principles that Dread Pirate Roberts had and, and the site had, because I really do think that that is the underpinning threat to the empire. Yeah, it's threatening on a number of levels. The, the thing for me is that I first got uh, interested in the internet in the late 80s. And uh, I got interested because, uh, A, I sort of knew my way around technology, um, and I found this community there. And the community was very fascinating. It was the what was called the BBS era. So you had all these different uh, news groups. And you had what was called the alt section, which had was like alt-rec book, alt-rec philosophy, alt-rec art, alt-rec drugs, alt-rec sex, everything you could possibly imagine. Everyone was using anonymous usernames and communicating and sharing data and media and, and all kinds of stuff. It was an amazing community. It was small. I mean, it was tens of thousands of people, but it was not millions of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that really striking then. And, uh, and it seemed like the beginning of something, like there was a movement. For me, Napster was this huge boulder in the water because now I was like, okay, now the, this is the democratization of culture. And what I noticed about Napster, which is why I sought out Sean Fanning and, and wanted to make a movie about him then, um, which I did, I actually sought him out in 2000, the pushback against Napster was mythologized. And I could tell that then because I was a Napster user. So every time you know, someone went on TV and said, Napster bad, you're just pirates, whatever, and I was thinking, well, I'm not a pirate. And most of the people that I know on Napster aren't pirates. Doesn't mean there aren't pirates there, right? But the majority of the people I knew in the community were not there to pirate. Um, so I started scratching my head going, what is this pushback about? And then you started you know, investigating the RIAA, the Record Industry Association, and their relationships in DC, and the threat. And it's a funny thing, because like you said about the Silk Road, you know, yes, you have drugs, and you have Bitcoin, you have all this stuff, and, and, and libertarians, and anarchists, and they're openly talking about dismantling the system. That's an obvious threat, but Napster was a huge threat to the power structure. And you weren't getting that kind of blatant uh, discourse, but they were terrified of it, and they were going to you know, exterminate these guys with, to the fullest extent that they could and brand them in the public as evil, you know, pirate people, an image I think they still have not really been able to shake. When I saw the Silk Road, I realized it was the same thing, that like whatever Ross's motives were, and this is not to exonerate him, but whatever his motives were, clearly in his political views, in his own personal history, he was looking to create a massive... Uh, safe haven online anonymous community where all of these ideas could be discussed. Whether people's motives got corrupted, whatever, the reality of it is that the Silk Road was at its heart um, a community mostly of pretty radical political thinkers and not of one stripe. Like Ross has libertarian leanings, uh, other people had like hardcore anarchist leanings. It was a, it was a, a, a genuinely democratized community. Um, and it was an amazing place to, to wait around in. The, the conversations, these were really bright people. Yeah. Um, 
And then you just have people there who just buy weed or whatever. I mean, <laughs> that existed too, right. obviously. So, no, I mean it's it's incredible because, like the documentary mentions, I mean even though you had all these people of different radical political bents, everyone kind of galvanized around the idea that the drug war is horribly detrimental to society and that drugs should be obviously decriminalized at the very least. You know, in the Silk Road case, the Silk Road was immediately built up as this much bigger thing, right? It immediately struck me that something was was rotten in Denmark when it was like billions of dollars in sales. Like, well, that's not true. You know, this amount of users is like, that's totally not true. I mean, it was, uh, it had made an impact, but it was um, in the scheme of things, uh, a, a little kind of weenie uh, website and this very tiny section of the internet that nobody goes to and most people couldn't figure out how to use even if they wanted to go there. And all the numbers were getting super inflated. And, uh, but then you look at the drug war and you look at um, you know the, the existential existence of the DEA and the FBI and and the amount of money, you know, the, the, the prison system, and you're dealing with a massive amount of power that is threatened by not just the idea of what the Silk Road represents, which is the democratization, as you said, of people who want to talk against the drug war. And, but what's worse, I think what was scarier for them, which is what happened with Napster, was they saw the future. Obviously, the internet is going to be where drugs are sold. Obviously, the drug war, you know, is all about criminalization and not about medical help and, and treatment. Obviously, these people's budgets are funded on the basis of this continuing, and they would lose their funding if it stopped continuing. So the threat level was on so many different levels. Then you get Ross, you know, moved from San Francisco to the Southern District of New York. And when that happened, we all knew he was screwed. Because then you add onto that the financial regulation concerns around Bitcoin, which is all centered around the Southern District. That's Wall Street, you know, that's their beat. And so Ross just found himself like jammed in the middle of like, you know, surveillance operatives, you know, <laughs> and he was breaking the cryptography rules and Bitcoin, you know, uh, people were terrified on Wall Street about where Bitcoin was going, especially in those days, they thought it was gonna upend Wall Street, which is absurd. But they were going after him. You had the drug war people. They were going after him. And so it was just kind of a perfect storm. The media floated around murder-for-hire theories that convicted Ross in a court of public opinion before the trial even happened. Yet as Alex notes, it was never charged for them. Thoroughly demonized in the public, he was swiftly convicted of every crime committed by everyone on the site. The judge handed down a double-life sentence without the possibility of parole. The FBI sting agents themselves were using Silk Road to steal money during the operation. Sean Bridges stole $800,000 in Bitcoin, while informant Carl Force siphoned $50,000. They also broke the law by hacking Ross's computer without a warrant and using that evidence to arrest him. The idea that, you know, they just gave him that sentence because they were thinking of the children, um, which is kind of how it was presented, you know, the children, the children. Um, is is absurd, and uh, you know the the Silk Road was a honeypot almost from the beginning. The feds were all up inside it. An enormous amount of the hard drugs that were being sold were being sold by federal law enforcement, both corrupt and straight straight up yeah. law enforcement. So a lot of the deaths that they were attributing to Roth were Ross were really directly attributable to relative you know different people of law enforcement agencies. So the hypocrisy was just staggering. And for me, what was cut and dried was very simple, which was. And this is the way I looked at it for the film. 
even if Ross was guilty of every single thing they claimed he had done, including the murders for mm -hmm. hire scam, none of those charges merit a double life sentence without the possibility of parole. They just don't. So it was, a, it was similar to what I watched happen with Napster. It was a, a successful spin job in the sense that enough stuff got waved around and the children and all of that stuff that they always pull out um, that the general public sentiment was like, you know, screw them, basically, just whatever. And uh, to me, that was a very strong indication of the politics of the case, of, of what they had at stake, what they felt they needed, an example they needed to make of him, how threatened they are by cryptography and anonymity and privacy and Bitcoin and whatever. Um, this, the over-severity of the sentence to me was a tipping of their hand. Had, honestly, when I went to the sentencing, had they give, even though I wouldn't have agreed with it, had they given him eight to 10 years uh, based on drug kingpin charges, which is what the heaviest charge was, which is, you know, the so didn't have drug kingpin. I mean, it's tiny, but it's a little hard to argue with that given the, the potentiality of, of what the crimes were, even though I may not have agreed with it. But it, the double life sentence was just a, t a tipping of the hand. It was so absurd and so completely unfair that it, it, it makes you have to ask why they felt the need to, to hang him in that way. And also circumvent the law several times doing so. You know, Completely. Compl you know, amazingly, like you said, I mean, there's other silk roads resurrected. Mm -hmm. You can't kill the idea. Aaron Swartz is another computer genius who posed a serious threat to corporate and government control. As a passionate activist for net freedom, Swartz believed that information should be free, especially when it's paid for by the taxpayer. His so-called crime was simply downloading academic journals out of reach to most people who don't pay hundreds of dollars in fees to universities they fund with their taxes. The Empire tried to crush him for it. He faced $1 million in fines and up to 35 years in prison, essentially a life sentence. Exasperated and depressed, Aaron took his own life. According to Swartz's dad, Aaron was killed by the U.S. government. Let's move on to Aaron Swartz, because this is mm -hmm. another prodigy who helped create open source technology, and I wanted you yeah. to comment on that, because this is another person that the, the hammer came down so hard. Of course, we know what happened to him, the yeah. tragic suicide. Why was he such a threat? Why is open source technology such a threat? You know, the words open source are terrifying to, you know, controlling interests, whether it's business or government. Um, and those are, you know, th there are some bad actors in those communities that, are, that will do anything to maintain control in a world where it's very difficult to maintain control. Mm -hmm. There's always this need to try to, like, hang a label on something and then hammer it into the ground publicly. And Swartz, that's what happened to him, was, was he was not just an open source guy. He was, you know, one of the heads of, of, of big activism organizations. He was, you know, a, a, a very charismatic leader. He was very well-spoken. He was very articulate. Um, he was very effective. He was like a trifecta of threat. You know, he was technologically adept. He was aggressively, uh, uh, you know, effective in his activism. Um, and he was uh, forward-thinking in terms of uh, politics and the machinery of, like, you know, he was big into sort of campaign fraud and voter election fraud and the corruption and, you know, the sort of what became the post-Citizens United world. So, he would have been on many lists for those reasons. And, and then eventually you're looking at these lists going, wow, he's on this list, he's on this list. He's like, this is a bad person. This is someone that is a threat to us. It would be helpful for us to, if not, you know, put him in jail for a little bit of time, at least, you know, uh, scare the shit out of him 
by coming at him with an enormous uh, uh, sort of charge of prison time. And that's a very common DOJ tactic. The WikiLeaks recent Vault 7 release, uh, I'm sure that you have been following it closely. The CIA has its own NSA-style apparatus, totally unaccountable to everyone, that it can do direct hacking into people's devices, turn on uh, microphones and turn into listening devices. I mean, what do you think this means? And also, what will it do the, to the cryptography movement? If you're using Signal, for instance, and your phone has not been, if you're not a CIA target or, or whatever government target, because it's obviously not just the US, is, um, then, and they haven't, and that uh, intelligence community have not hacked your phone. And it takes a lot to be a target on that level. But if they've hacked your phone, the way encryption works, if they own your box, as they say, it doesn't matter what technology you're using, because they're, right. they're sucking down your data before you encrypt it, and they're reading the stuff that you get after you encrypt it because they're sitting on your shoulder watching what you're doing through your technology. That's different than encryption. Um, encryption, if, if, the, if you're not uh, uh, owned, uh, which is a far greater population of people who want to remain anonymous journalists, dissidents, whoever, my kids, for instance, I try to tell them to use this stuff, um, and you're not owned, then that encryption is absolutely working. And, and there is no evidence today that that has been broken. Um, there is no evidence to suggest that they can read my, my signal communications or even some of my iMessage communications if they don't own the box itself, either my phone or my laptop. However, that being said, I mean, and Snowden warned about this years ago now. Um, I think many of us you know, who deal with encryption or, or who are dealing sometimes with sensitive material have always taken it at face value that if somebody really wanted to get our material, they could. I mean, I don't think, I think it's, it's, it's negligent to assume whether you know, US state actors or other intelligence you know, um, operatives from other countries I think it's, it's naive to assume that if you are really a hard target, that they're not going to be getting into your system somehow. And you look at like what happened to Podesta, whether you're a, you know, a tinfoil hat wearer or not, it's, it's a basic phishing scam. You know, operational security is, hard, is really hard, and there's no easy fix for it. There's no app that just suddenly makes you secure. It's kind of a mindset. Well, it's a fascinating schism right now, and it's kind of like, where do we go from here? Because you have the government that created these technologies. Of course, they've gotten so out of control, out of their hands, and they don't understand them anymore. Like you said, I mean, it's basically like hackers are on the forefront and on the edge of the technology and one step ahead of the government, whether it be Snowden or Barrett Brown or Aaron Swartz. Um, where do you see it going from here, especially in light of the Russia hacking hysteria? I mean, because on one hand, you can have kind of just a claim based on nothing, and we mm -hmm. don't have to prove it because it's all in the ether. On the other hand, it's like how, you know, it's almost like the faith of the world is put into the hacking community to try to save us from ourselves. Thankfully, um, the, the large percentage of the hacking community, you know, functions from a basic, it's a reason that you drive down the highway and people aren't just constantly, you know, shooting each other and smashing into each other and driving into the median. It's, we have to take it at face value that, that you know, the large part of people who are brilliant enough to be very, very good at hacking have some form of moral compass. And if they don't, that they're going to get outmatched by those that do. Cryptography keeps getting better. Um, I think that you know, the Snowden revelations were, were such an important um, and necessary 
thing for the public to start to wrap its head around because it's it's not as you said earlier it's exactly right you know if you uh, if you don't allow people to go dark if you penetrate uh, the the citizens' ability to protect themselves you are making them vulnerable and yourself vulnerable to bad actors you are you are weakening the security of the internet so it was is vitally important that the average person has some understanding that they're being surveilled and that they need some form of privacy, um, there's no doubt we're going to have to move into a world that, that includes uh, the ability to go dark. That's very scary to law enforcement. I understand why. If I'm a law enforcement, yes, I want to be able to open anyone's door and I want to be able to, I don't want anyone to have blinds on their windows because they could be committing a crime and my job's a lot easier if I can watch them do everything. Unfortunately, it falls on the average citizen to know a little bit more about how their technology works than they may want to, or a little bit more about what this stuff means. I think that for me, it's a philosophical mindset. I think that if your government or corporation or your mom or your kid or whoever is telling you that privacy is unnecessary and encryption is uh, for people who are criminals uh, are doing you a disservice. I think it's more really a shift of mindset. I think it's understanding that you must have privacy in the digital space just like you demand it in the physical space, and I would say more so. I would say, you know, we're not all, um, you know, Emma Watson or like people who literally have all their naked pictures, you know, hacked because that's, that's <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but the reality of it is, is it's just as easy to get your stuff as it is to get their stuff, right? And you don't know whose hands that stuff's going to end up in. You don't know who's going to end up with pictures of your kids. You don't know what they're going to do with those pictures of your kids. There are very bad people out there. So, you know, your banking information, you know, your entire medical history. Uh, we just got this, I would say, uh, most of us can agree, a fairly wonky political administration at the moment, right? Um, a few years ago, people were like, well, why do I care about my government? And now a lot of people are like going, oh, holy shit, like I don't want this administration coming after me because they have you know, anti-Islamic tendencies or you know, whatever uh, crazy prejudices they have, now suddenly I'm a target. You know, it's like all the people who voted for Trump now whose you know, husbands and wives are being deported. They're like, oh, we didn't think we were the ones that right. were gonna get, right? right. And the, the digital, yeah, exactly. The digital space is the same where you can suddenly, if your information is all freely there, you don't know what someone's gonna do with it and what administration is gonna do with it. And, so people, it's a mindset, have to think a bit more, um, a bit more prudently about, about how they protect themselves online. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.